Channing, and I'm Elise, and this is the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We focus on feminist interpretation of scriptures and follow the LDS Come Follow Me manual as a guide for study. We understand scriptures can be a tricky endeavor for readers, but we also believe sacred texts contain compelling examples of loving and liberating relationships with the divine, others, and ourselves. We hope you'll join us in exploring the problems and promises of sacred text with imagination, critique, and celebration to reveal what we feel is the loving and liberating heart of scripture. While Mormonism, with its iconic floral foyer couches, is our background, we follow our faith and our God on the winding path of spirituality over institution and connection over condemnation. We are fellow wanderers, weavers, and doubters. If you found yourself feeling a little too faithful for some and not enough for others, welcome. We've saved you a seat on the soft chairs. This podcast is funded by our listeners' generous donations. If you'd like to support our work, connect with us on Patreon or on our website at www.thefaithfulfeminist.com. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. We are so excited. We're both here. (laughs) Yes. Welcome, welcome. I mean, we're so glad that we are here and that you're here this week. Yes, yes. Um, So it's a real, real thrill. And I'm so glad that we're together because we are reading the book of Judges this week for the dates May 30th through June 5th. And I don't know about you, Elise, but this has been a book that we've been talking about probably since the beginning of the year that we're like, well, we know some of the stories that are coming up in there. So it was a little intimidating to go through and prepare for this episode. (laughs) Yeah, that's for sure. And I just before the episode started, I was kind of like hesitantly saying to you that I think that the book of Judges might be one of my favorite books unexpectedly that we've Mm -hmm. come across because there is so much to work with. There are so many dynamic characters There is like a whole cycle of idolatry going on. We see different conceptions of God. So there's a lot to work with. And again, it just reminds me how fast we're moving through the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. So today we are going to focus on four stories that specifically focus on women that show up in the text. And for each one of these women, honestly, we could spend one entire episode dedicated to each of them. But due to time constraints, um, we've decided to just do one massive episode to cover the book of Judges. Um, So before we get into those women's stories, we just wanted to give a little bit of background about what is the book of Judges and where, where do we place it? in um, a historical context and also like thematically in the text. So this book, the book of Judges, covers the time between the conquest described in the book of Joshua from last week and the future establishment of a kingdom in the books of Samuel. And during this time, we have biblical judges that serve as temporary leaders. Many biblical scholars argue that the book of Judges is meant as a showcase unit to illustrate the chaos and the depravity that the Israelite community experienced without a uniting monarch figure. Like Elise mentioned, we come across a consistent pattern throughout the book of Judges. It's one where the people are unfaithful to Yahweh, so Yahweh delivers them into the hands of their enemies. Then the people repent and ask Yahweh for mercy. So mercy, so Yahweh sends a leader or a judge for the people. 
The judge then delivers the Israelites from oppression and they prosper, but soon they fall again into unfaithfulness and the cycle repeats itself. The book of Judges doesn't shy away from some of the most gruesome and violent acts of humanity and communities, and we will see that play out in the episode today. Before we go any further, we want to offer our listeners a content warning. This is going to be an episode where we cover many heavy topics, including domestic violence, rape, murder, and mass shootings. So as always, with every content warning, we hope that you listen with care, slow down, take care of yourself. There is a lot of ground to cover. A lot of the stories are very, very heavy. And um, we, we cover them with honor and care and compassion, but it doesn't make it any less difficult to encounter and sit with these women throughout their stories. So So reach out to your community and take really, really good care of yourself, whatever that looks like for you. I think that we'll go ahead and start. We're going to work through the episode chronologically. And so the first two characters that we see in today's episode are the characters of Deborah and JL. This story happens in Judges 4, which is included in the Come Follow Me manual outline, and also in Judges 5, which is the song of Deborah. So written in a much more poetic or, yeah, in a much more poetic way. So a little bit of background on Deborah from the Jewish Women's Archive. Deborah is one of the major judges. This means like military leaders, not necessarily like judicial figures in the story of how Israel takes the land of Canaan. She is the only female judge and the only one to be called a prophet. And also she actually is the only one described as performing truly any judicial function, even though that's not usually what the judges do. Deborah summons Barak to lead the battle against the Canaanites, and he agrees, but only if she will accompany him. So Barak and his warriors destroy all the Canaanites except for Sisera, who then seeks refuge and is killed by Jael, that we'll also talk about in a bit. So Deborah is a judge, a prophet, a military leader, a poet, and a singer. She is also associated with fire and torches, as the name of her husband is Lapidot, which literally means torches, and perhaps Deborah encouraged him to deliver wicks to light the menorah in the temple. Like I said earlier, in chapter 5, we hear the song of Deborah, where Deborah is praising God for helping them defeat the Canaanites, and in verse 7, she declares herself a mother in Israel. There's so much more we could say about Deborah, but what I find really striking is her commitment to take care of her people and her lack of shame and really her pride in her calling and her vocation. She knows what she knows and she shares it with the people. Moving forward in the story of Deborah, we encounter a new character like Elise mentioned, Jael. And from the Jewish Women's Archive website, We learn that Jael is a Kenite and plays an important role in the story of Israel's wars with the Canaanites. Deborah prophesizes that the victory will not be a glory for Barak because Sisera will fall, quote, by the hand of a woman, end quote. When the battle goes disastrously for Sisera, rather than die with the men on the battlefield, he flees to Jael's tent, hoping to find refuge. Instead, Jael kills him. Jael thus fulfills Deborah's prophecy, but she confounds many other expectations. For example, inside the tent, Jael covers Sisera with a blanket and gives him milk. 
the Jewish Women's Archive notes that the maternal overtones here of ushering him in, soothing him and promising everything's going to be all right, giving him milk and tucking him into bed. And we further see that when a war general comes into a woman's tent, we are accustomed to fearing for the woman and not for the man. Some of the questions that we had, again, as we were looking to connect personally with jail were, how can I practice dissolving gendered expectations and roles? How can I use my cunning tools to subvert the patriarchy's expectations of me? And how can we look at this story of Deborah and Jael together and separately as a framework or a context to expand our expectations and understandings of both gender and gender roles? And just a few other background notes that I feel are really necessary for us to mention. So we can't forget that this war against the Canaanites was one of conquest. And it this war makes Israel the aggressor, even if God has commanded them to enter, conquer, and take this land as their promised land. In the same line of thinking, literary figures are never only good or only bad, and that includes the women in the scriptures too. I've been thinking about how specifically with Deborah, how can women in powerful positions still participate or cause great destruction and harm? So it seems necessary to me to approach these characters as complex. Surely we can celebrate Deborah and JL for acting against societal expectations and pushing boundaries of gender roles. And yet we can also critique or hold them accountable to the roles that they play in war, conquest, and extermination of peoples the the same way we would do with other literary figures. Thinking about pushing back on gender and gender roles and gender expectations, we found a really great article titled JL is non-binary, JL is not a woman by Aisha W. Musa. And Musa here offers non-binary interpretations that try and disrupt the erasure of non-binary folks by trying to highlight or, yeah, highlight or spotlight possibilities of non-binary folks within the Bible. And what I find it really interesting in this article is that the author continues to use the language of femininity and masculinity in man and woman in an attempt to challenge the gender binary as opposed to like completely removing gendered categories. They write, quote, My reluctance to undo constructions of femininity and masculinity is informed by Julia Serrano and Jenny Barnsley, who stress that shattering what is understood by femininity and masculinity undermines trans individuals' right to assert a stable gender category. Rather than deconstructing femininity and masculinity, I work towards disrupting the constructed notion that there are only two fixed and mutually exclusive genders. A non-binary perspective, one that recognizes any identity or expression that falls outside of the binarized heteronormative categories of masculinity and femininity and does not treat these two categories as mutually exclusive, need not undermine the existence of femininity and masculinity as valid gender identities. These gender categories are still worthy of recognition, end quote. This is really interesting to me because um, from a lot of what I've read and understand, I've understood non-binary to literally mean existing outside of the binary and almost having no, um, almost seeing no validity or seeing more harm in binary categories like man or woman, masculine and feminine. And so 
I was interested to read this article and try and work through understandings where we can continue to critique the gender binary while still validating or seeing masculinity and femininity as worthy gender identities alongside a whole complexity or a whole constellation of gender identities. Yeah, it's kind of that concept of like both and, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a really like nice that. way to say it. And so the author here offers JL up as a gender ambiguous figure, someone who confounds our gender categories. The author argues that JL performs their gender through simultaneously blurring acts of femininity and masculinity at the same time. And I really appreciated how the author presented two circumstances where we really see these two masculinity and femininity gender performances happen simultaneously. The first is in the name JL. The name JL is feminine and masculine concurrently, not one gender or the other. The feminine label as woman or wife and a masculine name, because we understand that JL is a masculine word. The text also notes that JL is a woman and a wife and the text attributes ownership of a tent to Jael, which can show Jael's performing the traditionally masculine role of home ownership. And finally, the word Jael is a masculine word, often meaning wild goat. Secondly, we also see gendered performances. For the performance of femininity, we see Jael embody a caring, nurturing, maternal behavior, as well as a potentially seductive behavior. And we also see JL simultaneously perform masculinity with violence, murder, and engagement with warfare. JL uses, JL uses force to penetrate Cicero with the tent peg and the hammer. Instead of only ever interpreting JL as a woman who is reversing gender roles, we can resist the temptation to explain away or ignore gender ambiguity and instead imagine or read them as a non-binary character. I love that. And I think, too, we're offering, of course, one way, not the way. I wouldn't be surprised if we hear from some non-binary folks or allies that say like, hey, you know what? Mascul even the terms masculinity and femininity or the concepts and configurations of those terms aren't helpful. They're still still very binary. And so I'm open for discussion and critique about this idea, but I also want to I want to highlight when non-binary interpretations of characters show up in the Bible, and JL seems to be one great example of that. And there are also other interpretations of the story of Deborah and JL. In my search, I found things like Deborah and JL are like Thelma and Louise, or <laughs> there was also a book that I didn't have access to. I needed to buy it, but it offered lesbian interpretations of JL. And I also remember some maybe like four or five years ago when I taught the story of Deborah and JL as a story of friendship and solidarity to my young woman's class for the ways that friends look out for one another. However you choose to engage and interpret the stories of Deborah and JL this week, we hope that you approach them with critical compassion. That way we are able to both see their expansiveness as characters and th see the ways that they push back on gender roles and confound our expectations, and also the ways that they participate in power and hierarchy. They are not removed from the history and the time period of this story. And as we move on into Judges chapter 11, we meet a new character named Jephthah. 
We learn almost immediately in the chapter that Jephthah was from the city of Gilead. His mother was a prostitute, and his paternity was so unknown that the text says, Gilead beget Jephthah. That means that the city of Gilead, the entire city, would be considered his father. Because of his parentage, Jephthah was pushed to the margins of society and lived with friends who were also unliked. Eventually, the Israelites found themselves losing a war with the Ammonites, and they reached out to Jephthah for his warring expertise to assist them. Jephthah agreed, to, Jephthah agreed to help once an understanding was made that if victory came to the Israelites, he would become the head of Gilead. After this agreement is made, Jephthah tries to negotiate peace with the king of the Ammonites without very much success, so the war continues. From the text, we understand that the Lord comes to Jephthah's assistance throughout the entire process, but... Jephthah wants to ensure an Israelite victory. And so in chapter 11, verses 30 and 31, he makes a vow with God that says, quote, If thou, God, shalt deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, then whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me when I return shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering, end quote. Jephthah's armies are victorious, and together they slaughtered the inhabitants of 20 cities. It was customary that when fathers and brothers and husbands returned home from war, their wives and daughters and sisters would greet them with song and dance to celebrate their return. Jephthah's daughter, who was an only child, participated in this custom, and so it was that she was the first to meet Jephthah on his return. There is an exchange between Jephthah and his daughter in chapter 11, verses 35 through 37, in which Jephthah mourns his daughter's greeting and says, quote, I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back, end quote. And he's referring to the vow that he had made that if God ensured their victory, then Jephthah would sacrifice whatever first came out to greet him when he returned home. Without knowing about her father's vow, the daughter says, quote, My father, if thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord, do to me according to that which thou do to me according to that which hath proceeded out of thy mouth. End quote. After this exchange, the reader presumes some type of knowledge arrives to the daughter about her predicament, because then the daughter requests to spend two months in the mountains alone with her friends to mourn. At the end of her mourning period, the daughter returns to her father, and in verse 39 we read, quote, And her father did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed, end quote. The text ends the story by informing the reader that the death of Jephthah's daughter is commemorated for four days every year by the women of the community. In Jewish Midrash, the daughter's name is Ada, which means obedience. And in an article by Anat Koplowitz Breyer titled A Nameless Bride of Death, Jephthah's Daughter in American Jewish Women's Poetry, Koplowitz Breyer shares that there are three questions raised by this story. First, why did Ada accept her fate? Second, why did she go into the mountains for two months? Third, and finally, was she actually sacrificed? Because of the ambiguity of the text, especially about whether or not she was actually sacrificed, there has been extensive exegesis and midrash on Ada. And there are really two theories that show up here. The first being 
Earlier, Midrash argues that Jephthah did sacrifice his daughter, while the second theory is that is that later commentators argue that instead she was secluded and isolated for the rest of her life. Again, this is the challenge for modern-day readers. We don't know the ending of the story, so we have a few options. We can place the text in history in order to condemn and or leave it. We can take the text at face value, which asserts that Jephthah did sacrifice his daughter, and critique and question it from that standpoint. Or we can follow the line of Midrash, which finds the loopholes and the gaps in the text and fills them with imaginative endings, which picture different experiences for the characters. We can also examine the way Judges 11 functions as a story with valuable commentary and life lessons for the modern feminist reader. Using those four options for how we can look at this story, let's start with the first one, placing the text in history so that we can decide to either leave it there or condemn it or both. Again, like we stated earlier, many biblical scholars argue that the book of Judges is meant to showcase the chaos and depravity of the Israelite community without a uniting monarch figure. In this way, the story of Ada functions as one piece of a 21-chapter-long tragedy. The tragedy is that the Israelites are largely self-governing and doing a very bad job of it. Readers might question, how bad of a job are they actually doing? And the text answers with the story of Jephthah's daughter, the concubine in Judges 19, which we'll cover later, and many, many, many more examples. So understanding that this story can function as an illustration of the depravity of the Israelites helps us find its place in the larger narrative of the Bible and even just in the book of Judges. But this approach must be examined closer. We have to question, what makes the sacrificial murder of women an acceptable illustrative technique? Also, a historical perspective may be helpful here in the case of theology as well. Because throughout the entire process of the vow of sacrifice and the sacrifice itself, the reader never experiences the voice of God. God never asks for the vow, never asks for the sacrifice, and we never hear God accepting the sacrifice either. So this is an opportune moment for us to ask, where else in history is the power of a man's voice equated to the power of God? If we were to move to the second approach, we can choose to take the text at face value and believe that Jephthah really did follow through with the sacrifice and examine the text with a critical eye. If we take this approach, we have the opportunity to examine the text from a few different angles. First of all, why did Jephthah make the vow in the first place? In Phyllis Tribble's book, Texts of Terror, Tribble argues that Jephthah's vow was made in fear and doubt rather than as a show of faith. So rather than trust in and rely on God's favor to see that the Israelites were able to win the battle, Jephthah requires assurance that not only will the Israelites be victorious, but that through their victory, Jephthah will acquire the power and position he never had but so deeply desires. Tribble writes, quote, Jephthah is unsure of divine help and insecure about his future among those who had once rejected him, end quote. To further illustrate Jephthah's faithlessness, Tribble argues that prior to the vow, God's gift of the Spirit was a gift given freely to Jephthah. And after the vow, God's Spirit becomes transactional. Tribble writes, Jephthah has gotten what he wanted in the way he wanted it, 
but he does not understand that to win is to lose, end quote. Yeah. Tribble also resists the pairing of this story with that with the story of Abraham and Isaac. So rather than viewing those stories as mirrors of one another, Tribble illustrates that they may be better viewed as opposite stories. Where Isaac's lineage was a respectable one, Jephthah's was not. Where God commanded the sacrifice of Isaac, God did not even ask for the sacrifice of Jephthah's daughter. Rather, she was willingly offered up by her father in a moment of insecurity. Where God saves Isaac, there is no redemption for the daughter of Jephthah. If we continue on with the line of questioning that Koplowitz Breyer presented, we can ask the question, why did Ada accept her fate? And to be completely honest, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of academic commentary for this question. Even Koplowitz Breyer doesn't answer their own question. So throughout all of my research, my answer is, I don't know. (laughs) But the text would have us assume that Ada did accept her fate without resistance. However, in contrast, the Midrash tradition offers us more complexity for her character, and we see her resist her fate. And we'll discuss that a little bit later. But in the text, she ultimately returns to her father and is killed. Why? I wonder, is it a sense of duty? Does she feel she's explored all of her options and this is her only choice? Does she feel that she's trapped? Is there more to the story? Of course there is, and there's value in continuing to ask those questions. And finally, the question that really seems to hang over the entire story of Jephthah's daughter is one that was presented by the Jewish Women's Archive article about Jephthah's daughter. The author writes, quote, Jephthah's daughter is the victim of her father's vow to sacrifice a person in return for victory in battle. The narrative is not clear about why no one else in the story, including Yahweh, intervenes, end quote. So our question is, why did no one intervene? And like I said, we'll talk a little bit about this in just a minute, but the question of especially why God did not intervene hangs over the story. Moving to the third approach, which embraces a more midrashic imagination that presents creative alternatives to the story, we can ask, was the sacrifice necessary? From the article, Jephthah's Daughter, Midrash and Agata by T- by Tamar Kadari on the Jewish Women's Archive website, we learn that Ada, Jephthah's daughter, is seen in the Midrashic tradition as someone who is well-versed in the scriptures. Her wisdom and knowledge is opposed in the narrative by the example of her father, who is seen as someone who is really prideful and reckless. No matter how well-placed her arguments against the sacrifice against the sacrificial killing, or how unjustified by the text the fulfillment of his vow is by the law of the scriptures, her father proceeds with his vow and kills her. Additionally, rabbis blame Jephthah's murder of his daughter on the high priest named Phinehas, who, on account of his pride, did not prevent Jephthah from fulfilling his vow. So Ada presents multiple examples in scripture that nullify the validity of Jephthah's vow. We learn, quote, the daughter is therefore presented, in contrast to her father, as conversant in the laws of the Torah and the stories of the Bible. She argues with her father like a sharp-witted Torah scholar who employs logical reasoning. Unfortunately, none of her arguments succeed in deterring her father from fulfilling his vow. The Midrash asserts that if Jephthah had really in fact read the laws 
of vows in the Torah, he would not have lost his daughter, end quote. So to answer the question, was the sacrifice necessary by all reasonable standards of the time? The answer is absolutely not. Oh, that's so heavy to sit with, knowing that it could have been prevented. And I wish that that was as bad as the story gets, but it's not. Um, if we sit with that question, if it wasn't necessary, and if the sacrifice was arguably completely unjustifiable, why did no one intervene? And from the same article that we've been referencing, we learn that some Midrash argues that when the daughter spends two months in the mountain, she actually travels to the Sanhedrin, which is the official Jewish council, and asks the priest there to help her convince her father not to go through with the vow, but they fail to do so. In fact, we learn, quote, Phineas the high priest lived in that generation and he could have annulled the vow. Phineas, however, said, quote, I am a high priest, the son of a high priest. Shall I debase myself and go to Jephthah, who is a boar? End quote. Jephthah likewise said, quote, I am the head of the tribes of Israel. Shall I debase myself by going to a commoner? End quote. The Midrash comments, and between those two, the unfortunate girl was lost. End quote. And I appreciate this Midrash on Jephthah's daughter because it colors the text differently. We see Ada moving and speaking and resisting. We see the ways that the men in her life fail her at every turn and how they ultimately decide her fate by deciding to do nothing. The Midrash itself resists the temptation to read the biblical narrative as Jephthah's sad story and instead asks the reader to examine the deeper issues present and ask questions like, how does my pride prevent me from protecting others who are at risk? How does my privilege keep me safe while putting others in harm's way? How does my silence and inability to imagine any other outcome or any other alternative action that I can take eventually cause harm and maybe even death? In the context of Ada's story, I also have more questions about the aspects of socio-religious power structures at play in this story. We see Ada shine in her knowledge and wisdom born from her very obvious study of the scriptures. She doesn't use the text in a theoretical argument, but instead she employs the text to ask for redemption and restoration of her own life. We see mirrors of this in our own congregations and spiritual communities. We see women who are well-versed in the text, women who are just like those that President Nelson quoted Elder Packer talking about in his 2013 talk, A Plea to My Sisters, saying, quote, We need women who can teach, women who can speak out. We need women with the gift of discernment who can view the trends of the world and detect those that are shallow or dangerous. Today, let me add that we need women who know how to make important things happen by their faith and who are courageous defenders of morality and families in a sin-sick world. We need women who know how to receive personal revelation, women who know how to call upon the powers of heaven to protect and strengthen children and families, women who teach fearlessly, end quote. And we can argue that Ada was such a woman. And what happened to her? She was murdered by the very person who claimed to love and protect her. And the social and religious system they both lived in not only did nothing to stop it, but perhaps facilitated the killing. 
I'm not trying to be dramatic here, but I am asking, in what ways does the LDS Church ask women to show up with devotional practices of depth and music and dances, which honor and bless? And then as soon as women show up with their poetry, their words, their bravery, their hearts and souls, how quickly does the church and their male leaders say, ah, well, you have studied the scriptures wrong. You don't understand. You don't know what you know. You don't see what you see. And through this continual forcible silencing and the threat of abandonment and eternal death of isolation, the church and its male leaders ask women to abandon and silence themselves in a million small ways until they are as good as dead inside. We learn from the Midrash tradition that Jephthah and Phinehas don't get off scot-free in the story, which is honestly pretty unique from the biblical narratives that we've come across so far. We learn from that Jewish we learn from the same Jewish Women's Archive article, quote, Both Phinehas and Jephthah are liable for the death of the latter's daughter. The high priest was punished by losing the spirit of divine inspiration, while Jephthah's penalty consists of the shedding of his limbs, which are buried in numerous places, as is learned from Judges chapter 12, verse 7, end quote. And I have a couple of other ideas about what lessons we can learn from Ada's story, but before I move into them, um, I want to make sure that we're super, super explicit about our standpoint on Ada's story. We wholeheartedly believe that there is no reasonable justification for parents choosing to murder their children, and in this case, fathers murdering their daughters. There is no restoring Ada, if indeed she ever really existed, but there is an opportunity here to look at and learn from her story so we can prevent it from happening again. So knowing this... We can use the story to examine its commentary about women's submission to male authority in the system of patriarchy. For example, Cheryl Exum, who is a feminist biblical scholar, argues, quote, The phallocentric message of the story of Jephthah's daughter is, I suggest, submit to paternal authority. You may have to sacrifice your autonomy. You may lose your life and even your name but your sacrifice will be remembered and indeed celebrated for generations to come. Herein lies, I believe, the author says, the reason Jephthah's daughter's name is not preserved, because she is commemorated not for herself, but as a daughter, end quote. In other words, Exum argues that the reason Jephthah's daughter is never explicitly named is because her sacrifice is complete in life and in death. She is entirely absorbed into her father's experience and never allowed to function outside of her attachment to him as an independent character. Secondly, we can examine the concept of obedience and how it functions in this story. And I kind of say this like a little bit tongue-in-cheek because obedience is a highly valued trait within LDS spaces. Many LDS teachers and leaders emphasize the necessity emphasize the necessity of obedience and its transactional guarantee of the joy of life, whether mortal or eternal. In their article, Female Resistance in Spite of Injustice, Human Dignity and the Daughter of Jephthah, author L. Juliana Classens writes, quote, It is troubling to see how the daughter's submission plays into the patriarchal intent of the text. It appears that the young woman does not question her father regarding the injustice committed in God's name that is about to end her life. 
Rather, she emerges as the perfect daughter whose loyalty and submissiveness to her father knows no limits, end quote. One of the messages that the story was speaking to us as we were going through and studying Jephthah's daughter's story, it just makes me so sick. Like I even feel, (laughs) I even feel it like in my body knowing what I'm about to say. The lesson that is really coming out of Jephthah's daughter's story so strongly is this. In the system of patriarchy, women never win. You can do everything right. You can be the good girl. You can follow the rules and do everything that is expected of you. You can be perfect and try to find the joy in dancing in the confines of the slippered experience you are offered in a hyper-control system. And it's not when you break the rules that you die, though that's always a threat, but in this story, the death comes precisely because you followed the rules, precisely because you obeyed. And for conservative LDS folks, for whom most theological perspectives hinge on eternal life, the sacrifice of a mortal life for an eternal one is seen as a just and worthy exchange. But I would push back on this and resist, primarily because apocalypticism is not life-focused. It's a death focus. I assert until the end of my days that an earthly life is one worth living. And it seems that Ada agrees. For her, the exchange isn't fair. She spends two months in the mountains grieving the loss of a life fully lived. She will never have children. Never again will she see the budding aspen trees. Never again will the marsh frogs sing as she tiptoes over the floating boardwalk. She has two months of storm cloud sunrises left to her. Only 60 opportunities to greet the sun, to play her timbrel and dance with the larks and sparrows. Ada submits to death but she does not want to go. The overvaluation, the overvaluation of obedience in a system which does not also honor informed consent and autonomy is a system of harm and abuse. If there is no distinction between the consequences of obedience and disobedience, as we see in this story, then I would passionately argue that women owe the system of patriarchy and those who actively participate in and those who actively participate in it absolutely nothing. Women do not owe their obedience to a system that would sooner kill them than slow down and just listen. Women do not owe their allegiance to communities and leaders that offer safety and inclusion at the price of quiet acquiescence. We can learn to identify harmful narratives that require death as a sign of love, devotion, obedience, and righteousness, and speak out against them to protect ourselves and our beloveds as if our lives depend on it because they do. Finally, were we to read this story as an example of ways to commemorate and tell stories so that they're never forgotten? We might say that what is unique about this story is that Ada is not forgotten by the community. Instead, we learn that four days of each year were set aside to remember and memorialize her. This tradition no longer continues, and it's also not ours to appropriate because it was a distinctly Jewish tradition, but as modern readers of the text, we can honor Ada in our own ways. For example, we might choose to make sure her story is mentioned in our lessons. We might share her story within our circles of influence. We can paint, draw, dance, or sing in her honor. We can speak out against other stories that tell us that the cost of love and devotion is death, And instead, 
assert again and again the value of life and choose to embody the belief that the kingdom of God is already here on earth. Finally, we can sit with the pain in our communities and hold space in whatever generous and genuine ways we are able. We can say the words, I am here, I am listening, I care. As we close the story of Ada, we remember to turn away from false gods who present devotion as a choice between love or life, and remember that there is no separating the two. Life is love, love is life. As we move on from the story of Ada, we move into the iconic story that most of us are probably at least a little familiar with, and that is the story of Samson and Delilah in Judges chapter 15. Where Delilah's story in the text begins with Samson, Samson's story in the text does not begin with Delilah. Instead, in the chapters prior, we follow Samson from birth to death. We meet his mother, who is unnamed, but who dedicates her child to God as a Nazarite. We also follow Samson through his life, including when he marries a Philistine woman outside of the covenant. We listen to the actions of Samson, who does incredible acts of strength, like slaying a lion with his bare hands, or cleverness, like lighting, (laughs) sorry, some of these are so wild, they're so wild, like lighting two fox's tails on fire and setting them loose in a cornfield so that he can wipe out the entire Philistine crops. We also have the really tragic story about when the Philistines retaliated because of this action and ended up burning um, his wife and his father-in-law. And we also hear more incredible stories of strength, like the time that Samson killed a thousand men with a jawbone of a donkey and much more. So very colorful character here we're encountering with Samson. Um, But before, I just wanted to make sure that we honored and recognized the women in the story who don't have names, but still play an important part in Samson's life. Then as we move to chapter 16, verse 4, we meet Delilah. And the text says, quote, and it came to pass that afterward, like afterward, he killed all of the people with the jawbone of a donkey, that Samson loved a woman in the Valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And for those of us who are not familiar with the story of Delilah, a very quick summary of it is this. Samson fell in love with Delilah. The Philistine army came to Delilah and said, we've been trying to kill this guy who's been torturing us for the longest time. If you help us, we will give you so much money that you will be set up for the rest of your life. And so Delilah's like, okay, sounds like a great deal. I will definitely do that. So throughout uh, the chapter, we hear of many instances where Delilah asks Samson what his greatest weakness is, kind of like the Hercules and Megara uh, <laughs> characters in the t- in the Disney movie Hercules, where Meg's like, "What's your greatest weakness?" Um, that's what Delilah is doing in the story, and Samson tells her a couple of things like, "Oh, if you just like tie me up with this special rope," or "Oh, if you just like weave my hair into a loom, then." I will be defeated. And each time, like, Samson doesn't actually give up his secret. But with enough times of Delilah pressuring him to tell her what his greatest weakness is, Samson finally gives in and says, and Samson says, the secret sauce is my hair. If you cut my hair, I will lose all my strength. 
So Delilah's like, yes, I finally got him. And she coordinates with the leaders of the Philistine army. They capture Samson and a whole bunch of drama happens. But basically the moral of the story is that Samson gets captured, his eyes get cut out, and eventually he dies in a gladiator-like stadium. So it's a very um, intense and fairy tale kind of story. So we're going to we're going to dig into it a little bit and examine the character of Delilah and question what we think we know about them. First things first, we would like to try and liberate Delilah from heteronormativity. Thanks to the article Delilah Monologues by by Caroline Blythe and Tegu Wajayamula. This is a phenomenal article because throughout the entire piece It's written and we're supposed to read it as if we are really hearing it from Delilah's own voice, almost like a, yeah, like a monologue or a diary from Delilah. So first of all, Delilah says, quote, in both biblical interpretations of Judges 16 and its numerous cultural retellings, Samson is the heroic, aggressively heterosexual Israelite he-man whose sexual desire for me is his undoing. I, meanwhile, am that personification of the evil foreign temptress, the femme fatale par excellence, whose heterosexual allure, Philistine exoticism, and feminine wiles prove irresistible to Samson. In other words, Samson is a typical male and I am a typical female, even worse, a foreign female. We have sex, I betray him, and it all ends in tears." These monologues also allow us to look at heteronormative gendered assumptions about sexuality. And Delilah continues to speak to the images that have been created by those who desire to dig into the mystery of her story. She recounts the many titles and labels that are given to her by scholars and artists and playwrights who portray her as, quote, a beautiful, heterosexually experienced woman who ensnares Samson in a shimmering but sticky web of erotic desirability, end quote, and labels her anywhere on the spectrum from temptress to most colorfully, quote, a sexually voracious whore, end quote. Delilah says of this, quote, with such images, my dangerousness is thus located in my sex, embodied in my gender. I become a sexualized body, a female body, and therefore a perilous body, end quote. The Delilah monologues also argue that Samson and Delilah had a queer relationship arrangement. The authors of the article pull from the work of Lori Rowlett, who interprets the relationship of Samson and Delilah as one with sadomasochistic overtones. A BDSM reading of their relationship is inherently queer. Rowlett envisions Delilah as a femme dominatrix and Samson as a butch bottom, and their relationship includes dynamics of consensual power exchange, such as dominance and submission, and we can read the events in their relationship, such as the two times that Delilah bound Samson with rope and the time she wove his hair on her loom as part of this sadomasochistic relationship. In Delilah's own voice, she says, quote, Rather than my tempting and unsuspecting Samson with my exotic allure, he enjoys the experience of domination and joins in our games willingly until he wearies of them and, referencing to his being captured by the Philistine army, quote, seeks to take our playing to a new and dangerous level, end quote. 
Delilah and the authors of the article argue that this relationship model leaves room for queerness, allowing Samson and Delilah a measure of ambiguity about their gender and orientation identities. Because consent and communication are foundational aspects of BDSM relationships, Samson and Delilah can be seen as equal partners who negotiate their desires and needs from the outset of their relationship. Delilah says, quote, This idea that Samson took an active role in our sex life, however you want to imagine it, is something rarely explored within interpretive traditions. It may be that Samson, driven by his erotic attachment to danger, was the one plying his own powers of seduction and attraction in this narrative, pursuing me using his sexual allure. Why should we not imagine Samson, rather than me, as the person fatal? I often think that Samson's lofty I often think that Samson's lofty Israelite standing as God's chosen Nazarite and judge over Israel makes readers queasy about attributing to him any sense of sexualized desire. Instead, they prefer to see me as the one foisting my sex onto this naive holy man. Despite that, in the narrative, he embodies a more explicit flavor of sexuality than I." End quote. This same article also allows us to see Delilah as a specter of the danger of women's sensuality. Delilah notes the tendency of readers and interpreters to categorize her as a harlot or like a prostitute, and how this reading then shapes and even damages the way that women's sexuality is viewed and treated. The authors write, quote, For some reason, shaping me in the form of a harlot seems to make sense to audiences and readers reflecting their preconceived notions of prostitutes and prostitution. It helps explain why, in their eyes, I behave immorally and unscrupulously, why I seem incapable of returning Samson's love, and yet willing to trade my sexuality in exchange for hard cash. This, in turn, alleviates their anxieties over the potential dangerousness of women. It's far more reassuring to believe that only certain women, that is, prostitutes, will behave like me than to imagine a social world where all women may potentially share my power, end quote. Here, too, we can also examine our opinion about sex work and sex workers in, in the way we feel about and discuss Delilah, especially as we consider that sex work and sex workers are stigmatized, are afforded little respect or empathy, and whose perspectives are less likely to be centered or understood with concern and compassion. At one point in the article, Delilah points out that prostitution was one of the only options available at the time for women who found themselves outside of kinship networks to provide for themselves. Delilah reminds readers that sex work increases risk factors of STIs, rape, and gendered violence and is not always the career of choice for all sex workers. Delilah warns readers against reading her acceptance of money in exchange for betrayal as inherently evil and instead asserts that the sum of money offered her would have given her a pathway out of sex work had she desired it. Finally, as if there are not already like a million reasons to to love this this article. article. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's seriously (laughs) so good. We also see Delilah defying and rejecting... 
we also see Delilah defying and rejecting gender norms. And I was seriously so excited when we were having the conversation about JL because I like whispered to Elise. I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to come up again when we talk Mm -hmm. about Delilah. Mm -hmm. Um, We see in the article that Delilah speaks to her ability to subvert gender. And we see throughout the entire story that she moves between what she calls, quote, traditional masculine and feminine worlds with apparent ease, end quote. We see Delilah skillfully navigate traditionally masculine spheres of coordinating and working with military and political leaders, and at the same time, move with confidence in the traditionally feminine characteristics expected of her. Delilah writes, quote, I evade easy definition, embodying instead a myriad individual fragmented self performing gender across a full spectrum of possibilities. And in these selves, or cross-dressings, as I prefer to call them, I show just how artificial, socially constructive polarities of masculine and feminine really are. I am warrior, whore, lover, enemy, male, female. I am whatever you want me to be and more. A master mistress of disguise, end quote. And this brings us to the end of Delilah's story, which shockingly is also unique in the fact that their story doesn't end with a sad ending. Delilah leaves the narrative in the exact same way that she entered it, which was shrouded in mystery. And our favorite person ever, Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney, says says in their article, quote, A womanist midrash of Delilah, don't hate the playa, hate the game. Gaffney writes, quote, Delilah is not tamed by her text. She is not rewarded with marriage or children. She does not need them. She can support herself. Delilah is free. She exits the text. She exits the text on her own terms, like a boss, end quote. Unfortunately, no matter how fired up we're feeling about the story of Delilah, There's one more very heavy story that we're going to cover in this episode, which is another text of terror, and it shows up in Judges 19, Judges chapters 19 through 21, and it's the story of the Levite, and it's the story of the Levite and the unnamed woman or concubine. So a bit of background about the story. At its foundation, chapters 19 through 21 is the story of a young woman's gang rape and dismemberment, which leads to the rape of hundreds of women. Just really briefly from the Jewish Women's Archive and the book Women of War, Women of Woe, we learn, quote, The concubine of a Levite is likely a lesser wife who left her husband slash master. After her husband finds her, the house in which they are staying is threatened by a group of Benjamite men who wish to have sex with the Levite. Their host offers the concubine in the Levite's place, which they reject, which they reject. She is then thrown outside to them by her master, and they rape her until the morning. At daybreak, the concubine falls at the door where she lies until the Levite opens it, demanding that she get up. When she offers no answer, he places her on his donkey, returns home, dismembers her, and sends her twelve body parts to the various tribes, demanding that action be taken against those who caused her death. As a result of this action, the Israelites gather together to listen to the Levite story and plan a response to the Benjaminites. A cycle of violence ensues, resulting in the slaughter of many Benjaminite women, children, and men, and the slaughter of most of the inhabitants of this city of Jabesh Gilead, 
and the kidnapping of the young woman at Shiloh, end quote. It is a heavy story. And maybe if you've been listening to the podcast since the beginning of the year, you might hear some similarities between this story and the story of Lot and his daughters, because it is also Lot who offers his daughters up to a group of men to try and negotiate his own safety. If you haven't given that episode a listen, we really encourage you to go back and and engage with it. So really, we can read this story, the story of the unnamed concubine, the story of Lot's daughters, and the story of Ada, Jephthah's daughter. These can all be considered texts of terror. We talked about it a little bit before, but this term, texts of terror, was coined by biblical scholar Phyllis Tribble. Texts of terror are stories of abuse, exploitation, and violence against women, which lack any sort of comforting resolution. Like, there is no happily ever after in these stories. And read well, texts of terror show us the failure of systems of power to both prevent violence against women and provide victims and survivors with any type of justice. In fact, it is often systems like white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, and heteronormativity that incite and perpetuate such violence. Thankfully, Tribble helps us know what we can do with this story, which is to recognize how it has a contemporary which is to recognize it as a contemporary modern story. Tribble writes, quote, Misogyny belongs to every age, including our own. Violence and vengeance are not just characters of a distant, pre-Christian past. They infect the community of the elect this day. Woman as object is still captured, betrayed, raped, tortured, murdered, dismembered, and scattered. Beyond confession, we must take counsel to say never again. Yet this counsel is itself ineffectual unless we direct our heart to that most uncompromising of all biblical commands, speaking the word not to others, but to ourselves, repent, repent, end quote. I appreciate this passage because repentance here seems to be about both witnessing the story and making large changes individually and to the systems at play. Reading this story as one that has modern day relevance, it really doesn't seem like too far of a stretch for us to imagine how this so how this story shows up in our contemporary life. One example we found in our research of this story's modern day relevance is to listen to it come alive as we think about the story of Sandra Bland. From the article titled Sandra Bland and Texts of Terror by Susan M. Shaw, we learn that Bland was a black woman stopped for a minor traffic violation in Texas who was forcibly arrested and died in jail, presumably from self-asphyxiation, after being unable to raise money for bail. Like the unnamed woman in the story, Sandra Bland was the victim of violence, terror, and power enacted against her, leading her to death. Here, too, we find Sandra Bland, like so many others, like Micaiah Bryant and Breonna Taylor, at the intersection of racism, patriarchy, police brutality, the prison-industrial complex, and misogyny, silenced by objectification, fragmentation, violence, and death. The article states, quote, The question for us now is how do we hear Sandra Bland's text of terror? How do we interpret her story and the stories of those biblical women against the systems of power that abuse, terrorize, and kill? In particular, for those of us who are white, how do we hear Sandra Bland's text of terror as a narrative of white patriarchy with which we are complicit? 
For Tribble, we read texts of terror in memoriam of women who are abused. Tribble says that texts of terror leave us with a call to repentance and change. There's no happy ending to texts of terror, no resurrection, no justice, just the glaring judgment of narratives of abuse and death sanctioned by systems of social, political, economic, and often religious power. What is left to us what is left to us is to hold up these texts as indictments of the systems that inflict terror on women, particularly women of color, and to demand change so that no other Hagar or Tamar or unnamed woman or Sandra Bland must face these terrors again, end quote. I appreciate this article kind of bringing this biblical story into a modern day context. And from here this story, the terror from this biblical story resonates again and again and again in our lived experience. And one of the other ways we see this modern day relevance is thinking about domestic abuse. At the beginning of the story of the unnamed concubine, this woman leaves her master and she returns to her father's house for four months. However, her husband slash master sets off to find her to, quote, speak friendly unto her and to bring her again. Then once the, the husband or master has like convinced the woman to come with him again, um, the angry mob appears and isn't going to be satisfied outside of the house. And it is the husband or the master who pushes the concubine out unto them. He does not keep her safe. He sacrifices her. So among all of the awfulness of the story, it is underlined with violence and abuse. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, we learn that on average, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. One in four women and one in seven men have been victims of severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. And while not always domestic, the U.S. Department of Justice states that four out of five Native women experience some form of violence in their lifetime. Within the LGBTQ community, intimate partner violence occurs at a rate equal to or even higher than that of the heterosexual community. Additionally, members of the LGBTQ community may be denied assistance and domestic violence services as a result of homophobia, transphobia, and biphobia. In this context, if you or someone you love is a victim of abuse, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline for someone to talk to and referrals to local services. Their number is 1-800-799-SAFE, SAFE, or 7233. I'm also thinking about this story and domestic violence being linked to mass shootings. Researchers from the Educational Fund to Stop Gun Violence and Johns Hopkins analyzed 110 gun murders of four or more people between the years of 2014 and 2019 and found that in 68% of incidents, the perpetrator either killed an intimate partner or a family member or had a history of domestic violence. Along this same line, in an article titled A Common Trait Among Mass Killers, Hatred Toward Women by Julie Bosman, Kate Taylor, and Tim Arango, they write, quote, One common thread that connects many men who commit mass shootings, other than access to powerful firearms, is a history of hating women, assaulting wives, girlfriends, and female family members, or sharing misogynistic views online, researchers say, end quote. 
And again, I think this is one of the harrowing ways where we are able to look at the text and say, wow, this is a text for our modern day lives because look at the atrocities that continue to unfold both at the hands of the state and under systems of white supremacy, capitalism, and sexism. Okay, we're working through this story. Hang in there with us. Thank you. Thank you for sticking around and spending time with this story. The final modern-day relevance that this story of the unnamed woman has for our modern-day lives is that what is its reminder of the culture that we find ourselves in, which is one that focuses on violence, abuse, racism, and domination. We've spoken about this many times before on the podcast, but we live in a culture that values domination, control, and ownership over all else. It's a culture where we prioritize violence in many forms be it domestic violence, public mass shootings, or globally providing billions of dollars of military aid to Israel in the destruction and murder of Palestinians. It is also a culture that turns women, non-binary, and trans folks into objects to be dominated, exploited, and terrorized through media representation, sexual assault, rape, and legislation. Not only do we see this in our own United States culture, but we also see the expansion of violence in the story as the rape and murder of the unnamed woman soon becomes the capture, betrayal, and rape of 600 or more women, not counting the tortured and murdered women of Benjamin and all the married women of Jabesh Gilead. Of this, Phyllis Tribble writes, quote, "...inasmuch as we have done it unto one of the least of these women, they have done it unto many." End quote. This is one of the most difficult parts about reading texts of terror. It is not surprising to me why we skip over these stories. They are hard, not just because they are removed stories in a past history. They're difficult because they're still stories of our modern day. And I think that as we are able to engage with, engage with these texts in a way that feels both safe and constructive, we have a responsibility to do so. As we wrap things up, we'd like to offer a final call to remembrance and action. As we read the lines from the poem, the daughter and the concubine from the 19th chapter of Judges consider and speak their minds by Leray Van Cleef Stefanon. This week, we encourage you to pray these lines for those killed and murdered at the hands of violence. After her murder, we hear the voice of the unnamed woman in the poem. She says, I am not forsaken, and no war will silence my bones. This earth drinks my blood in remembrance, and no man will silence it. I have put my story into my sister's mouths, and we will sing, and we will wail, and we will shout. Amen. This has been a tricky portion of text as we found ourselves both celebrating the characters in the text and critiquing the characters in the text, and sitting with the incredibly difficult texts of terror that show up in the book of Judges. Friends, if you've made it this far, we applaud you. Thank you for making it through what is one of the most iconically horrific books in the entire LDS canon. Um, (laughs) 
It is a real challenge and a real trial, but we are honored to have been able to share these stories with you and share them in honor, in memoriam, and in reverence. And we hope that as you continue um, your week through study and memory of them as well, that you can care for yourselves and care for each other. We love you and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We know your time and space is sacred, and we are so grateful to have spent ours with you. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be so happy if you left us a loving rating on iTunes and Spotify so other seekers can find us. Financial donations support the many hours of research, work, and devotion to each episode, as well as the everyday costs of creating and publishing the podcast. You can support us on Patreon or through a simple Venmo donation and help us create a world where creators, artists, activists, and beauty makers are valued and paid for their labor. Find us on those platforms and on Instagram as The Faithful Feminists. We are deeply grateful for your kindness and encouragement. We love you so much, and we hope to spend more time with you again soon. Bye, friends.